Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust, Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is this is big. This is exciting. Welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And today on the other side of the mic, we are joined once again by our good friend, Joshua Lin, Head of Derivatives at Genesis Global Trading. He has not been demoted yet, which is good news. He's still still manning the, the desk there. I think you're like, the. are you the only person in the office today? No, no, there's a good, healthy crew of us uh, in the office. It's it's come back a lot since the start of the year and all the uh, COVID scares, obviously. Well, you guys are definitely busy, that's for sure. Um, we, I think we had you on last time to talk about the second quarter snapshot that you guys had. Now we're, we're looking at the fourth quarter. It was busy. We saw $20 billion plus dollars of notional traded in Q4, if I'm, yes, I think I'm, I've got the right. Now, yep, here, here they are. So it was a big, it was a big year, tens and tens of billions in loan originations. And you get, you were kind of thrust into the spotlight with this recent announcement talking about some of the lending activity happening with NFTs. So the institutionalization of NFTs was a was an interesting theme in this report. I guess to zoom out, how's how's business? Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, 2021 was a banner year for crypto generally. Um, and I think as a firm, we were pretty well positioned just as a central sort of dealing counterparty to a lot of uh, other firms in the space. Um, you know, the retail aggregators out there that kind of um, were an on-ramp to a lot of new users of crypto, uh, you know, the, the corporates out there that are starting to use crypto actively, you know, in their in their operations and as an investment um, product in their in their own treasuries, and then you know just uh, asset managers, right? Asset managers, both from TradFi and from um, the crypto native hedge fund world, you know, venture firms um, starting to uh, get more liquidity on their sort of um, earlier stage investments. Um, you know, it was kind of a good confluence of all these different things happening in 2021 that made the market kind of. Uh, you know, such an interesting and uh, explosive kind of explosively fun place to be. 
Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the, the kind of overall theme, right. And especially you kind of saw this towards the back half of 2021 is just the convergence of, um, what was much more of a kind of wild west crypto world with the, the TradFi world and kind of, um, the new, you know, we talked about this in our Q1, um, pod or Q2 podcast, uh, when we were talking about the basis trade, you know, that, that was kind of when a lot of institutional guys started to put on these sort of trades, uh, market neutral. Um, that was a little bit of a gateway to adding more risk in crypto, uh, starting to allocate into earlier stage projects, you know, starting to look at, um, um, you know, things that have more convexity than just holding long Bitcoin and long ETH. Uh, and then, of course, like NFTs became a thing. Uh, and yeah, like you mentioned, you know, the NFT lending, that's something that was a, was a, a recurring sort of point of interest with customers um, of ours throughout the quarter, but really um, it's, it's a small part of our overall business, but it really captivated a lot of people's interests um, because it's such a novel idea. Uh, and, and because, you know, this is something that really you wouldn't expect to find in a, in a sort of um, financial market, uh, you know, this, this sort of ability to, to um, collateralize sort of art uh, in a way. And uh, that's something that you, you, you can do on a, you know, Crypto sort of merges all of these different fields together. I think if you're going to boil down the two overarching trends of 2021, the market got far more complex in the profile of trader and investor in the market, and also the complexity of the product that these new entrants need. And, and yeah, and definitely the institutionalization of, of NFTs is kind of a part of that second bucket. But we've seen, I think I shared with you the other day, we've, we're seeing all sorts of things become financialized. Credit Suisse was looking to securitize yacht loans to uh, oligarchs and whatnot. But let's think about the changing dynamic or the changing landscape of products. That certainly makes things interesting. Like you said, it's not just, you know, long, short Bitcoin or ETH, but a whole new wide range of tokens and different products to get exposure to those tokens. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, among the big themes that we saw for um, the last quarter uh, of 2021 was these the idea that you could um, use crypto um, to sort of uh, expand your business operations. So, you know, corporates um, interacting with blockchains directly, um, not just as an investment, um, you know, as, a, as an investment product in their in their treasury, but also as a as a um, enhancement to their existing business operations. And, you, you know, NFTs were one. So if we think about the two overarching themes of the market, not just in Q4, but over the course of 2021, we saw a growing complexity in the products that are offered to suit the needs of a increasingly more dynamic profile of counterparties. So the counterparties are maybe not just the crypto native hedge funds or trading firms, but now corporates who might have some degree of exposure to some of these more longer tail assets. So let's walk through maybe both of those points more specifically. Sure. Yeah. So uh, one very interesting use case for derivatives we saw um, develop over the course of the year were corporates holding crypto on their balance sheet, not just for investment purposes, but for operating purposes. 
Um, you know, it could be linked to receiving payments uh, denominated in tokens from uh, projects that they had executed for other uh, firms. Um, it could be related to uh, running, you know, nodes on a blockchain. It could be more traditional kind of uh, crypto native use cases like uh, receiving uh, a percentage of, you know, AUM or assets under custody uh, as sort of a revenue stream. We saw those types of firms really engaging on derivative hedges that uh, would, you know, uh, protect them on the downside, which was actually kind of useful, right? And if you if you looked at the Bitcoin price action throughout the course of the year, going from thirty to sixty five k, basically twice, uh, and then kind of round tripping back down towards the end of the year, um, it was actually a very useful tool for a lot of corporate treasuries, a lot of CFOs to sort of smooth out um, their revenues and their cash flows throughout the year. So, um, yeah, I think the set of assets that were being hedged uh, really expanded a lot. Right. And um, I think part of it was that some of the assets being hedged are um, staking assets, which have, you know, specific bonding uh, periods that, you know, made it difficult to sort of hedge in a liquid way with just spot markets. So um, we saw a lot of folks sort of monetizing those positions by, let's say, selling call options on stake positions or uh, doing doing callers, uh, buying puts, selling calls. Are those some of the usual suspects putting on those those hedging mechanisms? It's 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 mixed. Like, I think there are the usual suspects. You know, there are like mining firms and, um, you know, exchange firms and asset management firms that are hedging cash flows. But there are also firms that are uh, maybe long-term investors in a particular staking protocol or, or base layer that uh, has t- tokens that they want to kind of hold and participate on the network, and they want to reduce their market exposure to that underlying asset so, while earning some staking yield, right? Um, and obviously, there's there's a lot of sort of um, implications around hedging that um, you know, could could or could not be favorable in terms of a tax perspective as well. So a lot of people are kind of thinking about different angles. I wonder if there's also a component. We saw, I think it was yesterday or this morning, um, Gucci announced that they were going to acquire some land in the metaverse. There's been a number of retail brands looking to access or build in the metaverse. So they have to acquire tokens to do that. So I don't know if those are specific names. We don't need to divulge certain names, but that probably opens the door to a new type of client or counterparty who, in getting involved in the metaverse, acquiring these metaverse tokens might need some of these hedging capabilities to smooth out that exposure. Yeah, that that's absolutely right. And obviously that is a, a critical function of a corporate treasury in the real world, when you're purchasing assets denominated in, in uh, currencies outside of your domestic currency. Um, and we're seeing a lot of that kind of spill over to meta, metaverse sort of uh, um, operations for these corporate treasuries. I, I think it's still pretty early stage. It's, it's certainly not something we see, you know, every corporate, you know, pounding the, the, our doors down to, uh, to hedge this stuff. But it is one of these things where um, the inquiries are started coming in especially where it's like, you know, hey, we, we have $25 million or $50 million of, of um, you know, some some random token. Um, and then you kind of dig into it a little bit. It's like, oh, yeah, collaborations that we're doing with uh, Metaverse or NFT type uh, project. 
We also saw an, an uptick in the number of counterparties interested in leveraging their NFTs as collateral. When did when did that sort of start to take off? And do you have any sense of is it is it mostly NFT whales who are coming in, or is it a mix of different types of counterparties? Yeah, so I think that really started to emerge uh, more with our high net worth clientele. Um, so counterparty is that uh, we're already sort of holding a basket of you know liquid liquid assets using Genesis primarily as a prime bro- broker to trade spot you know to to borrow and lend against those positions um, already or or trade derivatives against them, um, and more and more over time, obviously people are accumulating. Um, valuable NFTs as part of their broader portfolios. So um, it just made sense for us as a firm to think about those those portfolios holistically inclusive of um, the, the value from NFTs. It's not something that we do on a regular basis. And I think from like a business perspective, it, it's still, let's say, you know, less than 50 basis points of our overall sort of, um, you know, lending business in terms of um, the magnitude of the collateral. Uh, value. So it's not, you know, it's it's certainly something that's very early stage. Uh, and in a way, you know, we're spending a lot more time thinking about, um, you know, the diligencing these types of um, collateral. Uh, we, we do a lot of work, for instance, sourcing um, bids like backstop bids for the collateral that we do take um, so that we have some sort of um, at least, you know, a, a floor on the value of that collateral uh, from from firm bidders out there. Um, and we do that because, you know, we do have like a pretty broad network of counterparties that are engaged in, in sourcing um, NFTs. Uh, we, we talked with a lot of um, NFT funds out there um, that are specifically investing in them. We talked to a lot of the high net worth individuals that are engaged in, um, in buying and selling these, uh, these NFTs. So, it is a pretty broad market, um, and it's certainly one where, uh, over time, I think it'll become much more normalized to consider these as financial assets. But um, you know, for 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 this early stage, I think it got a lot of people's attention that it is something that is becoming much more liquid and and um, you know can can actually be um, used in this sort of financial way. Well, I I just feel very vindicated because. I think I got a lot of flack on Twitter when I said that some of the big banks will likely one day look at taking NFTs as a form of collateral and, you know, people were a bit incredulous, but it makes sense if you think about some of the other luxury goods that play a role in a high net worth individual's financial picture. So Frank won Twitter zero in that sense. Another interesting aspect of that is it speaks to the degree to which the market is becoming more dynamic with its own cycles playing out. And another meme that I kind of, or another narrative that I memed into existence was this idea of NFTs as a store of value amid the broader crypto route. And to a degree, you've seen the antithesis, or rather the flip side of that play out with the price of ETH and Bitcoin going up. And then now NFT floor prices going down. But that must be really interesting as a trader in this market compared to when you first started, where everything was kind of locked together and would move in unison. And now that's not so much the case. You have maybe ETH going up when NFT floor prices are going down. You have maybe DeFi um, tokens doing all right when maybe 
NFTs aren't or Bitcoin isn't. What, what does that mean for maybe the business? Yeah, I, I think it is interesting, right? It's opened up a new vertical uh, or, or a new sort of sector for people to allocate into. So, um, you know, I, I think NFTs can decouple because just like the emergence of any sort of new uh, crypto category, um, when people are allocating into it, it does create like a bit of a of a mini cycle where it can it can sort of separate from the the, um, the broader uh, industry. And um, yeah, I, I think it was partially that where, you know, you saw a lot of sort of uh, celebrities and, and um, you know, high profile folks. Uh, you know, publicly sort of saying they're they're buying NFTs and making them their profile picks and things like that. Um, but there's also this effect of, you know, with, with this market uh, where it is, with Bitcoin and ETH being so tightly coupled to more macro uh, markets, um, that folks are thinking of even, you know, NFTs as uh, a place to rotate assets into that might have more um, convexity to the upside. Um, also, you know, not, not just NFTs, but you, you kind of saw this effect too. in some of the layer one assets, uh, like this, the, the soul Luna AVAX hype trade, um, in the back half of the year where people were sort of continuously rotating, uh, between kind of these new layer ones on, on the back of like different catalysts, you know, like the, um, the ecosystem fund announcements, things like that, where, um, they saw that as a better place to sort of capture the, the, uh, upside than, than in Bitcoin and ETH, which were going to be much more linked to kind of macro events. Last time we talked, we spoke a lot about the basis trade, which has been a huge presence in the market. But this this past quarter, at the end of the year, we saw a lot of downward pressure on, on the basis spread. It was pretty much, I mean, it was kind of hammered. What does that mean for market participants and and where do they go next? And is there any possibility that we see that spread kind of widen out? Yeah, for, for sure. I think it, it got as wide as uh, 20% uh, in, in Q4. Uh, I think m- most of that was on the back of the, um, uh, the kind of CME uh, widening due to the ETF launch. So a lot of people were sort of um, positioned ahead of that. You know, they, they own the front month future. Um, and then obviously it compressed a lot. And the compression, I think, mostly came from the, the beta between, um, you know, the, the correlation between the um, basis spread and uh, just uh, spot prices, right? So as um, a little bit of the risk appetite came out of the Bitcoin market, so did, so did the basis compress. So I think um, we're going to see more of that sort of tie together over time, um, especially as, you know, you hear about these massive sort of fundraising rounds for crypto firms, you know, crypto trading firms. You see a lot more capital being deployed. You see a lot more financial services companies like BlackRock announcing um, their entrance into crypto and their offerings there. Um, those are all, you know, there's going to be more capital that's going to be deployed. Uh, and certainly the basis trace is a juicy way to capture that. Uh, so we're going to see that compress, I think, throughout the year. So where do they go next? Where 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 is the hunt for yield going to take these folks if if the basis trade is is now the old old dog? Yeah, I think um it's it's gonna kind of focus on um other market neutral strategies. And now that more people are comfortable with DeFi, I think you'll see a lot more deployed there. Um, you know, I think a lot of the other 
firms in our in our uh, competitive set, like our uh, sort of dealers and lenders, um, are sort of engaged in in some capacity in DeFi, and I think we're in a way um, a little bit more conservative in how we approach it. But I think it's going to become uh, a little bit more mainstream, right, for firms to sort of um, offer products around DeFi yield. Um, yeah, I think the one that people kind of point to as a benchmark is the sort of anchor yield associated with UST, um, Terra UST. Uh, and that's, you know, around 20% per annum, right? So that's a pretty high bar. Uh, and obviously there's a lot of very high profile backers of that, uh, of, pro of the project um, that are sort of subsidizing that yield. So I think, um, you know, we, we've seen actually a lot of interest around trading stable coin, stable coin yield, um, protecting against um, adverse sort of peg movements, peg breaks in, in stable coins. Um, that was obviously a big theme a couple of weeks ago uh, with the Abracadabra sort of MIM UST uh, uh, sort of leverage driven uh, movements. I, I, we saw a lot of sort of inbound inquiry around hedging UST positions. Um, we also saw a lot of folks sort of trading um, forwards on it just to capture, um, you know, the the big sort of move downward, the, the sort of peg break while it was sort of yielding pretty high um, levels because people were, were so concerned about that peg. Uh, obviously, it turned out to be pretty short-lived, but a um, lot of interesting two-way flow on UST. And obviously, like earlier this year, we saw a lot of interest around USDT Tether. Um, people were, were pretty concerned about the peg there and, you know, potential sort of regulatory actions. So um, stablecoin insurance, like peg insurance, seems to be like a big trend uh, so far this year. So that's kind of maybe a new development for Q1, this, this, this desire for firms to access an insurance on the degree to which a dollar stablecoin is, is maintaining its peg. Definitely, definitely. I think um, you know the the things that have happened even since the the kind of UST events, like th things like the wormhole hack. Yeah, seem seem to kind of reinforce that that theme, right? Where you have some asset that's pegged or wrapped, um, but you you know e even though you can extract you know what you think is a is a pretty high nominal yield, you may need to pay away some of that yield to sort of protect yourself from that that really uh, bad tail event. Yeah, which we've seen. We've seen a, a number of those over the past two years. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling and rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investment 
investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com now. What what other types of differences are you seeing emerge between Q4 and Q1 that are notable? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes along with the convergence of, of um, crypto native and, and TradFi. Um, we're seeing just this very broad compression of uh, implied volatility. So, um, yeah, I did like a, a, a tweet storm about this uh, not too long ago, but, you know, a lot of the sort of longer dated vols on Bitcoin and ETH are um, near multi-year lows. Um, and yeah, I think part of the reason is that there are a lot of new entrants coming into crypto and seeing, you know, Bitcoin and ETH vols trading at, you know, 60, 70, 80 vol. Um, and they're comparing that to, you know, vol levels in FX and equities. Um, and, you know, granted, crypto does realize at a higher level. Um, but I think they're realizing that there's a lot of, you know, cross asset correlation, right, between crypto, especially these days, um, between crypto and, and S&P 500 and the rates market and commodities. Uh, and so it's pretty easy to sort of think about it in that context and, and start exploring sort of cross asset, you know, vol volatility trades, vol volatility spread trades. Um, and I think you're starting to see that compression kind of bleed into um to the, the long dated vol market. So we think that, you know, there is ultimately going to be like good value there, right? Because, it, you know, there's eventually not going to be, there's going to be a lot more demand than supply at some point. Um, that supply is coming from, like I said, the, the sort of people putting on these spread trades, maybe like some structured product flow. Um, but at some point, you know, especially when you get these explosive moves higher, um, there, you know, the, that that vol can really just gap, um, you know, 30, 40, 50 points uh, in a matter of a week or so. So we've seen that. We think there's like some value there. Obviously, you know, you kind of have to be patient and hold it for a while. But um, we, we think like long dated call options are a pretty interesting play here. It's an interesting point when you think about how the market is becoming less volatile. It kind of maybe pushes traders to act more creatively to an extent, but it also might be bad for a, a firm like Genesis. If there's less volatility, maybe there's a little bit less action for you to capitalize on. I, I think that's that's right. Although you have to you have to balance that with the fact that there is just a much wider diversity of um, assets and products to trade. Like even um, just in the last quarter, right, we, we became much more active in uh, the DeFi option vaults. So, um, you know, we're actively sort of bidding in a lot of these auctions. Um, it's a great way to sort of source like short dated um, gamma, like options risk um, in the market. That's that's mostly being supplied 
um, from just retail participation in these protocols. So um, like we, we think that it's just going to continue in that trend where there's going to be a new kind of flavor of the day, right? Whether it's a new, um, you know, token category, uh, like, uh, you know, like uh, governance tokens, um, maybe, you know, a year ago. And then, um, you know, this year, maybe NFTs. We think there's just going to be more and more verticals that, that we can, you know, engage with clients on. Clients will start thinking about them as different, um, you know, as different portions and, and sort of allocate into them and rotate between them in their portfolios. Uh, and then, you know, obviously you can write uh, infinite number of derivatives and sort of lending and, and structured kind of loan transactions on all of these new things. So, um, yeah, we're, we're very excited. I think, you know, the, the reduction in volatility in Bitcoin and ETH, I think, is just a, a sign of maturity for the asset class. I think it just means that more and more people are willing to hold it um, as a, a sort of store of value um, and give it some sort of monetary premium. And so that is naturally just going to compress the ball long term. And it's kind of a reinforcing process, right? As vol decreases, it moves traders maybe into those longer tail assets, which brings with them more hedging capabilities, more derivatives, which which then sort of compresses the vol in those assets as well. Uh, yeah, abs- absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot of studies, right, in traditional markets where derivatives, you know, bring about basically lower... Um, lower realized vol because there's effect, more effective ways to transfer risk between market participants. And so um, we're definitely seeing that. I think that's that's something that has has been in play in crypto for a long time. Um, I think the other effect, I think we talked about this in, in our last podcast, is just like more um, uh, as, as the derivative market matures, you know, more reasonable sort of um, uh, boundaries and, and sort of um, guidelines around like the amount of leverage that people can take. So as you know, as, as we move from like a, a hundred to one type of leverage market to something like a 20 to one leverage, uh, and it becomes more regulated, um, you know, the, the, the chances of these sort of big blowouts, uh, where there's cascading margin calls and things like that are, are starting to become less and less. That was a big theme. I think when we spoke last time, I'm going to pull up the data to look at liquidations really quick. Just bear with me. So let's take a look. Futures. If you look at the chart, I mean, that was kind of the, I mean, we saw one here, um, number of liquidations, boom, boom, boom. Bitcoin liquidations, long, short, expand. It's been pretty muted since, since really since December, there was, there was a big liquidation event there. But this, this cascading liquidation phenomenon, which made a lot of headlines last year, is this, are we going to continue to see this or is it going to kind of dampen out? Uh, I, I think um, as, as there's more and more capital, right, uh, and, and as the leverage, um, you know, the, the max leverage allowable on exchanges comes in. And, and maybe as, you know, you kind of see you kind of saw this with the ETF launch, a lot of um, leverage, a lot of open interest moved to CME. So, um, you know, in particular, as, as the markets become a little bit more regulated, I, I think you'll see less, uh, less of an impact from those sort of cascading uh, margin calls. I think, you know, it depends on the asset too, right? Like, I think uh, if, you, if you have these sort of assets that are primarily traded on, um, 
you know, the offshore exchanges or assets that are, you know, levered up in a certain way through um, DeFi sort of lending protocols, then, you know, th those will certainly be more impacted. Yeah. It'll concentrate on those long tail assets or maybe on in certain sectors of the market. It's an interesting point. Do you think that the sort of price discovery has officially moved to maybe from spot offshore to regulated U.S. futures? I don't think it's uh, fully there yet. Um, I, I think just comparing volumes where um, you know, most, most of the spot volume is still traded on uh, offshore venues. Um, I think that, you know, what we're seeing is um, more price discovery on, uh, well, we're, we're seeing a lot more maturity, I think, in the options market is probably like uh, the, the biggest change that I see. And maybe I'm saying that more as an options trader, but um, like definitely spreads have compressed a lot on uh, listed options, you know, the ones particularly traded on um, Deribit. Um, I think it's a lot easier to source sort of block liquidity uh, out there. Um, I think we, we had one of the biggest sort of uh, uh, months we've ever had in December of uh, 2021 in um, listed option blocks. And I think, um, you know, more people are sort of going that route um, because of the liquidity rather than sort of trading bilaterally OTC. But I think, you know, some people uh, pr prefer the, the OTC route, maybe for uh, other reasons, right? For for the fact that it sort of um, is you can cross margin it with other positions that they have with um, with our firm, or for uh, for um, the fact that it's like a less visible sort of um, open interest in the market, um, or or for the fact that it's um, you know maybe maybe operationally a little bit easier uh, to deal with us uh, or or more customized in in some sense. So. Um, yeah, I think we're seeing it just it, what it means. And I think this is actually um, a much bigger trend for this year is that because the underlying sort of vanilla options market is becoming more liquid and the fact that you can get off larger blocks of risk, um, we're going to see more people building um, structured products on top of that. And, you know, when people use structured products in crypto, generally they're talking about uh, the, the DeFi option vaults. Um, but really, there's like an existing structured product market that comes from um, kind of TradFi world, where um, it's mostly sort of these these contractually uh, papered you know products. They're usually wrapped in some sort of regulatory uh, framework, you know, and uh, they're usually like issued by some sort of uh, you know bank or some sort of um, regulated entity. Uh, we might see more of that, right? And we might see more embedded optionality in those types of structures um, presented to retail. And I think. You know, the, the we've already started to see a lot of this, um, and I think a lot of that was driven by the um, listing of um, retail accessible, um, uh, you know, equ equitized sort of crypto products, right? So maybe thinking about things like Coin, which the Coinbase um, stock, right? So publicly traded, it's a pretty good proxy for crypto. Um, the DITO, the, the ETF, uh, pretty liquid, uh, you know, obviously has that that sort of um, holding CME future. So has a little bit of that roll down decay. But um, it's it's, you know, it's something that people can access. It's liquid. They can observe the price. Um, so it's easy to build structured products. VITO has its own, you know, listed options market. Um, so that means that, you know, dealers who are looking to create products on it and dealers in the traditional sense, like banks, um, 
can hedge it directly in the sort of equity market um, for the ETF uh, option. So that's like, you know, all these things mean there's there's just going to be a proliferation of more and more of these structured products. Um, you know, the, the vol impact from the structured products is going to bleed through to the underlying asset vol uh, for Bitcoin. And, you know, that that's what I did mention earlier is like there is that sort of you, you see more supply, right? And like um, parts of the curve. Uh, and parts of the term structure. And I think that that's why we're seeing a little bit of compression here in the creation of more structured products. But those structured products present a really interesting opportunity for retail, potentially, if they're offered right. You can imagine where a scenario where you're sort of basically lending someone Bitcoin and then you're selling a call option on top and then you can get a much higher yield squeezed out of that. And, you know, 2021 was really all about the hunt for additional yield. 2022 will probably be about achieving those yields in different, to your point, in different types of markets than we saw last year. We're going to see probably, I've been talking with people about the emergence of dual currency loans, which I think we talked about. Yeah, dual, dual currency notes or, or structures are... Um... Yeah, very popular structured product, right? There's, there's, um, it's pretty vanilla in the sense that you know it's it's basically just one embedded um, call option, but it's uh, it's something that is definitely um, supplying vol into the market a little bit. So um, we do expect a lot more of those types of structures, uh, and you know, compared to the similar types of structures you would get in traditional markets, whether it's written on FX or equities. Uh, it's obviously a whole different ballgame in terms of the yield, right? Like you, you might be able to extract like, uh, you know, a five or 10% yield on, uh, on equity product. Um, but you could extract something like, you know, 30 to 50% on, on Bitcoin. So definitely one of those things where um, on, on optically, at least, it looks more attractive to do it on a Bitcoin product, especially if you think it's like mature enough that it continues to range, right? Like it's not... It's not something that has another maybe 10x move, although, you know, it might might in the long run, but in the short term, if it stays like a range bound product and, you know, you think there's like um, a steady bid from, from from corporates and asset managers, uh, then, you know, it's it's interesting to, to consider those sort of short ball um, structured products. I think it's pretty interesting. It'll be cool to see like one day if potentially like stateside, that's something I could like get through, you know, a traditional broker and just easily get some yield on my coins. Or, you know, we'll we'll eventually onboard you as a Genesis customer. We'll get you one of these days. <laughs> I mean, just looking at like options, it's changed so much. The market structure and the number of participants. Paradigm has done really well. I mean, their growth is pretty, pretty nuts. And I mean, you can you can talk about it. Like the market structure on day one when you started compared to now is night and day. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, just the number of um, counterparties that we talk to on a daily basis, um, you know, the, the, the quality of the uh, traders on the other side has changed a lot, right? Like uh, almost almost every, you know, firm that we talk to has like a dedicated vol trader right now, right? Like it's somebody that came from FX or equities or, or commodities or something. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like the sophistication of strategies, you know, people are doing more, um, you know, like, uh, you know, one by twos, one by threes and, uh, you know, this sort of like calendar trades, like basically like strategies that you would run in a, um, like a vol type of shop, 
um, we're, we're seeing more people come in um, and, and, you know, trade, trade things that um, were hard to trade before, right? Like, um, like spreads between Bitcoin and ETH ball or, um, you know, maybe second order Greeks, like, uh, you know, the, your, your dependence on um, your Vega dependence on spot or your Vega dependence on ball, like this, these sort of, um, these sort of more arcane things. Yeah. The more giga, giga brain stuff. <laughs> Just holding the big brain up the mountain type of guys must be nice for you. You know, you feel less alone. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's easier to have these conversations with people. Uh, and instead of, you know, just like, Hey, uh, you know, a call option is the right to buy something. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, no, it's, it's great. I mean, I think it's just like, you're going to be able to build so much more interesting stuff in the future, um, stuff that people really need and uh, and want to, to sort of, you know, position their book and transfer risk. So really excited about it. Do you think there's any, like, when you think about Wall Street broadly, you, you mentioned vol shops are seeing this as an opportunity. Um, more traditional um, players are getting in, but is there any corner of the market that maybe hasn't yet? Um, well, I guess to kind of reposition the question, I think it's easier for more dynamic shops to get in when you have these types of products and it looks like the type of things that they're used to doing, like credit, you know, inv investors coming to the lending side, vault traders coming to the vault side. It's not, Oh, like Bitcoin is the future. So I need to pick up a bag. It's okay. There are like, market opportunities here that look exactly like the market opportunities that I'm used to. And there's a normal counterparty with whom I can engage on that trade. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Right. I think that's why, um, you know, like I want to think back about new tokens launching and sort of the, the cycle for, um, you know, new, new verticals emerging in crypto. Like you can think back to when exchange tokens were a big thing because you know people were ascribing to them like the same types of valuation metrics you would find for equities right like uh the you know the revenue relative to um you know the kind of the payout ratios and stuff like that um and uh yeah i think that that's exciting to people it's like something a familiar language for for people to um participate in um yeah i think there are still gaps right like people are um, there's this sort of like weird middle ground between like venture and uh, liquid markets traders where you kind of have to put value on things that not a lot of people are thinking about. And hopefully this isn't giving away too much alpha, but like, you know, there's all these sort of like deal flow going on where it's basically you have to put a value on like um, a vesting schedule or like a locked schedule. And like that's, you know, that's pretty much like a like a forward curve problem or like an optionality problem um, and you just put a price on it, like there's a value for everything. And if you have the right model for it, you can figure it out. But um, it's weird because you have like multiple types of people trying to price these things. Like you, you have people that are approaching it purely from like a venture angle um, and thinking just about sort of like valuation, right? Maybe valuation in the context of like other deals they've seen or valuation relative to what they think the exit opportunity is. But then you have like folks that are approaching it purely as a financial problem of like, you know, here's here's how I price liquidity. Uh, here's how I price upfront liquidity. Here's how I price like, you know, term liquidity uh, and, and financing. 
Um, and, and, you know, then, then you have the sort of price discovery associated with that. Right. Um, you know, so it's, it's like a very, very interesting sort of, uh, collision there in that, that, that area between venture and, um, liquid markets. That's a really interesting point that I'm surprised we haven't talked about before because it's pretty, it's pretty glaring this might be a sophomoric way of asking the question, but do you find, you know, these venture firms that are having to dabble in liquid markets in a way that they haven't necessarily been equipped to finding themselves uh, a bit sort of unprepared with dealing with the hedging specificities of engaging in a more liquid market? Like none of the, you know, you look at a traditional VC, they don't have experts in vol or hedging or um, derivatives, but they probably need that that sort of capability now that they have these more liquid exposures. For sure, yeah, I, I think um, that that goes with sort of the continuing upgrading of personnel at, at you know these asset management firms. I think we're seeing a lot more folks come in with that sort of expertise, um, like like trading backgrounds um, or um, you know specific sort of. Uh, um, product expertise in, you know, options or, uh, lending or, uh, financing, um, you know, types of transactions. I think we, we think that, um, that's going to be a big driver, right. For our business where we interact with firms, uh, and offer that as a sort of outsource service to them. Um, you know, not everyone wants to have, you know, a specialization in this sort of very, uh, you know, deep in the weeds, like um, financial market structure uh, type stuff that we do. So I think a lot of people will rely on us for that type of service. But I think, um, you know, it helps to have at least one or two people, you know, head trader type of roles that, that have that expertise as well. That's kind of a new role for a VC, right? Like I know that Paradigm has one. I don't know if A16Z does, but they probably w- would need to have something like that if you're going to be of that size. That that kind of leads to the question of talent. We haven't really talked about that before, um, but it's hard for everyone to kind of find the right people to to sit in these various seats that agree to which you're involved in, in onboarding or bringing on new folks. But do you guys have like a philosophy around that of, of, of who you want, who you try to bring in? Yeah, yeah. I think... Um... Right now, when I when I think about it, right, there's sort of um, there's a lot of talent that is sort of more focused, like coming out of traditional finance that have like product specific knowledge um, or maybe like uh, client segment specific knowledge, you know, like like certain hedge fund segments or, um, you know, uh, institutional segments. Um, And then there's a lot of folks that come from like crypto native markets uh, that grew up in crypto. Um, you know, did a lot of sort of like investing on their own, seed investing, are very familiar with DeFi and personally deploy, you know, their own capital into like um, stablecoin yield farms and stuff like that. Um, there's there's not that many people that can do both and can can speak fluently to both. Uh, so that that's kind of where when I um, talk to people that we're interviewing, that's kind of what I what I'd like to see is like people who have really engaged. Uh, in the more uh, obscure parts of, of uh, DeFi um, in their own PAs and like have developed their own types of trading, trading strategies um, and, you know, have like pretty, uh, you know, honestly, like have some familiarity with like crypto Twitter and like, you know, have engaged in discords and in projects and things like that. That's kind of hard to find though. What do you think is the biggest or what are some of the biggest red flags 
in a potential candidate, aside from not listening to the scoop? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it's probably like um, just so. Yeah, like if if you're if you're sort of um, out not in in crypto, you you probably don't have a good understanding of like the um, the you know competitive landscape for uh, mar like market structure in crypto. Basically, like you kind of have to know like who the key firms are, um, and you know what their specialties are. And this is really hard. Like you know, it's it's hard for me, for instance, like sitting outside of let's say like the high frequency trading world to know like who has, you know, who's winning in like, you know, interest rate options. Yeah. Yeah. You have no idea. Right. Exactly. And you can really only know, I think if you have contacts in the industry that you can talk to and kind of probe as to like who, who the major players are, or if you, um, what their specialties are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, or you, or you could just like interview at a bunch of different shops and like talk to a lot of firms. Right. Um, but yeah, like most of the, most of the really good people like have some existing sort of relationships in the space that they can like leverage for information to understand market structure. This is tangential, but just thinking about like the number of people at these firms, it's exploded. You know, it was really just like dozens of guys a few years ago and now it's easily hundreds, if not topping like a thousand at the trading shop specifically. What about looking towards uh, the rest of the year? Any predictions that you have and what maybe should investors and traders be keeping an eye out for? Because the tail end of 2021, the beginning of 2022 has been so much driven by macro events and by sort of Fed policy. Um a lot of people are expecting that to continue at least until the beginning of the actual rate hike cycle in March, um, which is why uh, we, we think, you know, the front end of the, the ball curve will, will stay kind of a little bit under um, um, a little bit under control. Right. It's not going to really move a ton uh, and we're going to stay sort of range bound, I think, at least until there's like more clarity on what the Fed will do. Um, but once once rate hikes start, you know, I think. It's, it's interesting to compare this to like the kind of 2015 to 2018 cycle where there were a couple of hikes. Um, and actually in that cycle, that sort of coincided with um, Bitcoin uh, rallying a ton, right? So um, while people kind of think like a tightening uh, in, you know, financial conditions uh, market is, is bad for risk assets like, like crypto, um, it could, you know, we've seen kind of the opposite play out in the past. Um, so, you know, so something we're really keeping an eye on uh, this year, just just understanding the, the sort of dynamics between um, people who are, who are trading crypto as a macro asset and kind of, uh, you know, new uh, capital that's kind of flowing into the space. Those are going to be like countervailing forces. Uh, that's a really, yeah, that's a really great place to close because I think it, I think that's 100% right. And it's it's this weird dichotomy where almost like every time you see like a Fed headline or a macro headline, markets get spooked, then a new billion dollar fund launches. And like we kind of are tossing the ball between between those sides of the of the um, of the field. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Joshua Lim, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you on and to talk. Markets with you. Uh, hopefully, we'll get this out soon. This, this is going to be 
I can't wait to write this one up. There's going to be a lot of good highlights. Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show, stopping by to chat with us. It's always a pleasure. Uh, where can our listeners learn more about you? You're more active on the Twitter these days, dropping uh, alpha, beta, and gamma sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> People love the uh, vol tweets. So uh, yeah, it's uh, Joshua underscore J underscore Lim um, on Twitter. Great. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back with you again with another exciting guest. See you soon.